If you have your Bibles, please join me in Isaiah chapter 6. The Old Testament book of the prophet Isaiah. And we'll be reading the first part of chapter 6. I'm glad to be here with you. I'm glad to continue our study and the attributes of God as we, as we behold our God together, as we gaze at his character and who he is and allow the, the worship to take hold of our lives and to transform, to transform our hearts from the inside out. I want to have a little footnote before we read today's text uh, to this study. I don't think I mentioned it last week, but I want to make sure I say this, that as we look at these attributes one by one, and we're, we're not going to cover, I mean, if you look up in a, in, you know, you study some theology and you look up the, the list of the attributes of God, there's, there's a whole list, depending on what, how the theologian decides to divide them up. There's a lot of different characteristics we could talk about. And we're, we're certainly in, this, in the course of this study not going to study all the facets of God's character that we can imagine. But um, we all, I also want to make mention that um, as, we, as we think about God's characteristics and attributes, we need to remember that they're not like moods. They don't, uh, they don't change, first of all, and then they, they also don't shift. So God is not like uh, one day he's holy, and the next day he wakes up and decides he's going to be loving. And then the, the following day he decides he's going to be righteous. God is, as we study these, uh, God is all these things all the time. And I just want to make sure that we understand that, that God never acts uh, in contradiction to any of these attributes. They are always part of whatever he does. And so uh, that will make sense as we, as we go along in our study. But if you have your place in, in the book of Isaiah, I'd like you to follow along. We're going to read the first Eight verses. Isaiah records these words and says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. Two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongues from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me.
The story of Isaiah's vision here in the temple is one that causes us to to step back and wonder a little bit at the greatness of our God. See, because as Isaiah saw God seated high and lifted up, I, I love what Scott says periodically when we sing that song, his response wasn't to run up and high-five him and, and give him a big hug and sit down with a cup of hot Coke, share his thoughts for running the universe. Isaiah dropped down and thought he was going to die in the presence of this God. We love to talk about the love of God, and we should, because it's the reason that we're sitting here today. But we mustn't bypass the other attributes of God, even the ones that might make us squirm in, his seat, in our seats a little bit. And I've, I think holiness is one of those attributes. The background to this story is that he says he saw this vision in the, the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was one of the halfway decent kings of Israel. If you've read the account of, of Israel from the time the monarchy was first established with Saul uh, and reached its, its zenith with David and Solomon, and then it started to go downhill with some, some uh, rough characters. You know, the kingdom split in two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had like no good good kings. The southern, good, southern kingdom had a few good kings, some that were uh, pretty good, and then, and then, you know, maybe they did well for the most, majority of their reign and then kind of petered off at the end. And Well, Uzziah was one of those guys. He's generally supposed to have died in the year 739. He came to the throne of Judah at the age of 16, you imagine that, teens? 16 years old and you're a king? I mean, some of your parents don't trust you to drive and here these guys entrusted with the fate of the kingdom. He was a good king. He got started well. Unlike his father Amaziah, who was, who was wicked, uh, Uzziah followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Second Chronicles 26 tells us, however, towards the end of his life, he committed an act of sacrilege by offering uh, an offering of incense on the altar of incense in the temple against uh, in disobedience to God in Second Chronicles twenty six sixteen he was confronted by the priest and eighty other priests and was firmly rebuked and as a judgment he had to suffer with leprosy the rest of his life and you can read about that at the end of Second Chronicles twenty six started off well and kind of didn't finish so strong but was still one of the better kings. Isaiah himself, we don't know a lot about Isaiah, although his, his time of, of, of ministry extended for quite a period. He, he was a prophet during the course of four different kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. We know he was married, that he had at least two children. Some tradition tells us that he was born in a, in a family with some nobility and some place of standing. Tradition also says that the, the last king finally got tired of him in his prophecies. In, uh, uh, scripture doesn't say this, it's only tradition, but that he was sawn in half as a, as a punishment for prophesying so honestly and in your face. Uh, he warned the people, and throughout this book of God's impending judgment, but also left them with a clear message of hope that God would one day restore his people. He said more about the Messiah than any other Old Testament prophet. If you have your notes, 
and, and want to follow along, we're going to break up this passage a couple different ways. The first point in your notes is the description of God's holiness. The description of God's holiness. We're going to kind of look at several of Isaiah's senses as he was experiencing this unbelievable and, and literally earth-shaking event. First two verses tell us what Isaiah saw. And I've got my clicker here. I probably should advance these slides. What Isaiah saw. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. So Isaiah says he saw the Lord. John qualifies this in the Gospel of John, verse 1241. It says, Isaiah saw these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. And I think that that's an important distinction because the Scripture tells us no, no man can look on God face to face in all of his glory and, and live. And so uh, you might remember the, the story where Moses had asked to look to see him. And he said, you can see my glory as I pass by. You can look at the, the back of me as I go past you. But Scripture tells us no one can see God face to face and live. Isaiah uses the, t- uh, the term here. He says, I saw the Lord It's the word Adonai. It was a title, not a name, and it means sovereign one. It says, I saw him high and exalted. Refers to God as way up there. (laughs) He got a vision that that conveyed that, that God was not on the same level as him. He wasn't putting his arm around God and and walking side by side. Isaiah was down here and, and God was up here. He saw God high and lifted up. And this is just a reminder, as, and as we read this whole account, the New Testament tells us that we can call God Abba, that we can call God our, our Father, that we can boldly enter the throne room of grace. There are some great things that have happened because of the blood of Christ. But we need to still remember that this God that Isaiah saw is still the God that we pray to. We need to be very careful about addressing God too flippantly. Tossing around his name like it's just another word. I've seen people, and I, and I know it's probably... Maybe I'm just, I'm just too stuffy. I don't know. I've seen people with, with T-shirts where they got a picture of Jesus on there. It says, Jesus is my homeboy. I actually, I actually went to a store one time and I saw bobblehead Jesuses that you could buy. Um, we got to be very, very careful that we don't just address and refer to God flippantly. Isaiah was not wearing a Jesus is my homeboy shirt that day. I can guarantee you. He wore, probably his shirt said something like, thank you God for not striking me dead. (laughs) Because Isaiah saw him high and lifted up. He saw God's glory. It refers to God's robe. It says the train of his robe filled the temple. A king's robe indicates regality and and the robe of, of God that in the vision that Isaiah had was, was just so majestic that it filled the entire temple. 
It tells us that above him stood the seraphim. This is an interesting verse. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. We don't know much about the seraphim. In fact, this is the only place that the seraphim are mentioned. The Bible refers to angels in lots of places, but these seem to be a distinct group of angels. We're not sure how many there were. The passage doesn't tell us. We know from Revelation 5.11 that there were myriads and myriads and thousands of and thousands of angelic beings around the throne when, when John saw his vision. And so whether they're all seraphim or there's some seraphim, some normal angels, I, I don't know how, that, how that's, how that's going to be. But whatever he saw, these beings had six wings. They covered their eye, they covered their face, probably a reflection of God's, uh, just the, the, the humility that they felt from being in the, in the presence of God, that God was too holy to look upon, covering their feet was probably also a way of conveying humility. You've got to understand that what Isaiah saw here, these, these were not chubby babies with wings. These were terrifying beings in and of themselves. In fact, the word seraphim can mean uh, serpent or fiery one. And so Isaiah is getting this picture between the, the vision of God, the angelic beings around the throne that is just instilling a, a holy awe and a holy terror in his heart as he sees the majesty surrounding the throne of God. Secondly, we, we see that Isaiah heard something. We want to note what, what Isaiah heard. Verse 3 tells us that one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So Isaiah heard these angelic beings as they flew around the throne of God. They were repeating over and over and over, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. By the way, I just have to add this, this footnote. I, I um, you know, sometimes, as I've talked to other pastors and other, other people, sometimes there'll be debates over what type of music should be sung in, in church. And one of the things that I hear about some of the newer music is that it's, it's too repetitious. And, and, you know, sometimes some of it is. But I've got to be honest, if, if you read the accounts of the visions in heaven, there's a lot of repetition, a lot of holy, 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 holy. We need to remember that, that God, is, God doesn't seem to have a problem with repetition because it's restating truth over and over and over. And if you're like me, sometimes it takes a while to sink in. Repetition is a good thing. And here, the word holy is mentioned three times. In, in, uh, in, a, in a Hebrew and an Aramaic, if they wanted to emphasize something, um, you know, in, in, in English, if we want to emphasize something in writing, we usually put a, an exclamation point. If we want to, to let people know that we're, we're serious about it, that we want to, to let people know that it's an exclamation, we'll put that point at the end of a sentence. Well, in, in Hebrew and in Aramaic, they would repeat a word. Uh, Jesus, when he ministered on earth, oftentimes he would uh, begin a teaching with, truly, truly. I say unto you, or verily, verily, if you have the King James, verily, verily, I say unto you. And he, he wasn't saying this is 
simply that this was true, but he repeated the word to let them know that what I'm about to say is especially important. In the Old Testament, there's kind of a humorous repetition of words. It's in Genesis 14, and it's telling a story about a battle of kings in the valley of Sidon, and it mentions uh, some uh, men who fell in the great tar pits in the region. And if you read the story, uh, some of your versions will refer to them as asphalt pits or bituminum pits or simply great pits. And the reason that there's confusion in the translation, and I, I, I read this in, in, a, in a book this week, that the original text doesn't really explain what kind of a pit it is. It uses this Hebrew repetition, and, it, and he says they fell into a pit pit. And I think that the author was letting you know that there are pits, and then there are pit pits. If you fall into a pit, it's officially a bad day. But if you fall into a pit pit, you might as well forget it. And that was the Hebrew way of letting you know that this was a, this was a big thing. Here in Isaiah chapter 6, the seraphim, they don't call God holy. They don't call God holy, holy. They say holy, holy, holy. This is the only attribute of God that is ever repeated three times. Nowhere in Scripture is God called love, 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 or righteous, 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 or immutable, immutable, immutable. Here Scripture refers to God and over and over and over again as holy. To repeat something three times, as I understand it in the Hebrew language, was to greatly emphasize the significance. These seraphim were communicating to Isaiah and to all the heavenly hosts that this God truly is holy. The word holy means pure, moral perfection. And it has a, an added meaning of separation, that there is a distinction between the creature and the creator. And Isaiah keenly felt that distinction here in the presence of God. Thirdly, I want to add what Isaiah felt. What Isaiah felt. Verse 4. This is what he felt, physically felt. We'll get to his emotions in just a minute. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. As Isaiah was seeing this vision, the temple began to quake around him. Smoke began to appear. When we see visions of God's glory or uh, God's presence there always seemed to be smoke and fire in the Old Testament. And it says that the temple shook. I read this week that even wood and stone have the good sense to be moved by the majesty of God. And so, Isaiah, as he trembles, as he, as he shakes, as he as he stands before the majesty of God, we, we see his response. 
his first response was confession. He says, woe is me. Woe, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Some of your translations say, woe is me, for I am undone. I, 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 like, I like that translation. I'm, I'm ruined. I, I'm a wreck here. I've got no other response than to just crumble. He says, I dwell in the midst of a a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. As he saw God's holiness, he sensed his own unworthiness, the depth of of his sinfulness. Second response is that we see a cleansing. Because even in the midst of Isaiah's overwhelming guilt for his sins and the sins of the nation, and notice that it was in that order. God, if, if all God does is convict you of other people's sins, you're not standing before his holiness properly. If Isaiah started off here with, man, God, you've put me in the middle of seriously unclean people, but thank you that I can be a righteous beacon in their midst, then I don't think Isaiah would be getting it. (laughs) But his first response is, woe is me. He saw clearly the depth of his sinfulness. Second response, more the response of God, is that of cleansing. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. This is God's gracious response to our understanding of our sins. See, when we come to a place of confession, it's great. Our God doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us wallowing in our sin. And and see, when when we come into proper understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness, that first response is, woe is me, I am undone. And we got to be careful, first of all, not to move past that too fast. When, if someone walks into my office and they're overwhelmed with a sense of their sin, sometimes my first inclination is to remind them that if they've confessed it, God's forgiven you and God's love is so great. Don't let it bother you. But we need to remember the seriousness of sin for a minute. God freely forgives us when we confess it. First John 1 John 1.9 tells us that. What? But it doesn't hurt for us from time to time to reflect on just how serious that sin truly is. Because when we take a minute or two to do that, in the presence of God's holiness, I think, I think our heart's worship will be that much stronger, will be that much greater. But God in his grace came here to cleanse Isaiah And it was symbolized by the seraphim taking some tongs, taking a a coal, a hot coal off the altar. The altar, as you know, was was used for sacrifices to 
to atone for the sins of the people until the Messiah would one day come. So that coal was still hot from the sacrifice. And as the seraphim flew over to Isaiah, that, that coal symbolized that the sacrifice was covering or paying for Isaiah's sin. He didn't, the scripture doesn't tell us that he felt pain when that hot coal touched his lips, but he felt cleansing. And it's symbolic of the forgiveness that God offers us. I read one author that said the place where holiness accepted, the altar was the place where holiness accepted and was satisfied by the death of a substitutionary sacrifice. The live coal then pictures the idea of atonement or propitiation, forgiveness, cleansing, and reconciliation. Isaiah, the erstwhile doomed sinner, is left in no doubt when the seraph explains, Behold, as soon as this touched your lips, your iniquity went, and your sin is paid for by a ransom. Notice that the, forgive, or the, the confession of sin came first, then the forgiveness. This was a free act of God's grace. Isaiah did nothing to accomplish his forgiveness. He didn't have to first be willing to be a missionary. He didn't say, here am I, send me, and then be forgiven. He didn't have to, to dedicate his life or go through a, a bunch of steps. He, he confessed his sin, and God forgave him. What a glorious truth that Isaiah reveals here in part in the Old Testament and what the New Testament fully explains with the coming of Christ. That when God forgives us of our sins, it's His act of free grace and it is a complete cleansing. And so then we see the response, confession, cleansing, and then finally, commission. God it says, I heard a voice from the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? In verse 8, And who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I. Send me. You would think that being overwhelmed with a sense of our sin and unworthiness might leave us kind of huddled in a corner somewhere feeling like there is no way God could use a wretch like me. I am, I am pathetically useless to God. I am a wicked sinner. What in the world could he do with me? But that is the great, great thing about God's forgiveness. As he cleanses us, and he says, now go into all the world and preach the gospel. And he says to Isaiah here, I need a mouthpiece. I need a prophet. Who will go? He doesn't leave us in our sin feeling like we are absolutely, pathetically useless to God, but he says, now you've been cleansed. Will you go? And Isaiah says, I will go. And for time's sake, we don't have the, the time to read the rest of the chapter, but it's, it's kind of, then, Isaiah, then God gives Isaiah his mission. He says, you're going to go preach the gospel to the people, but by the way, nobody's going to listen to you. <laughs> that's, his, that's his mission. A tough tough call that Isaiah had, as did all the prophets, really. But I want us to take a few moments and just reflect on some practical application as we think about Isaiah's encounter in the presence of God and the holiness. What is our response to the holiness of God? When we encounter scriptures like this, when we see just how pure 
and radiant God is. And we take a minute and look at our own hearts, and I, I think after all these years of being a Christian, I still struggle with this, and I still battle that, and I'm still immature over here. What should our response be? I think, first of all, we see ourselves as we really are. When we're confronted with the holiness of God, that, that, that seemed to be the pattern of men who, who had visions of God in the Bible. Daniel had one such vision. Daniel 10.8, he writes, So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. John wrote in Revelation 1.17 when he saw the resurrected Christ, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. When we encounter greatness, we are, are left with a, an acute sense of our insufficiency. And I think this is really important because, again, if you're like me, I feel much better about my own spirituality when I'm comparing myself with somebody who I think is really rotten. Anybody ever been there? Maybe, maybe you look at somebody uh, who you see uh, you know, on, on America's Most Wanted or somebody you see on the evening news and you think, I'm not so bad. You know, that guy that's, that's getting arrested for domestic abuse, you think, I'm a pretty good husband. <laughs> I've, I've, I've not been in handcuffs. I'm, I'm doing okay. See, we tend to compare ourselves with others that we think are, are lesser than us, which if we, we really got a glimpse of our hearts, we would see, we, w- we wouldn't do that. Um, I, I like to think sometimes I'm a pretty good golfer. And when I'm playing with people who have never picked up golf clubs before or, uh, you know, are using the wrong end of the golf club, I'm like, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. And then you go golfing with Steve, our youth pastor. If, if you ever golfed with Steve, I'm like, we went out a few weeks ago and, and Jeff tells me, oh yeah, Steve played in college a little bit. Oh, thanks for letting me know that. Steve is a really, really good golfer. Steve, the only time Steve spent out in the woods was helping Jeff and I look for our balls. When you, when you are around someone who is significantly more righteous than you or a better golfer than you, you realize, wow. <laughs> when you gaze at the holiness of God, Your response should be like Isaiah, like John, like Daniel. And we see the seriousness of our sin. You might say, well, that sounds depressing. Why is that so important? Because you and I need to remember from time to time that we're not God. That we're not God and that the God we serve is not us. (laughs) We need to take comfort in that. And rejoice in that. And sometimes we simply need to tremble at that. The God we worship is holy. He is distinct and he is separate and he is not us. And we gaze at the holiness of God. We see ourselves as we really are. We will also be filled with worship. We will also be filled with worship. Because I I don't spend time when I'm with God. I don't spend time lauding my greatness before Him. 
God, you should have seen what I did this week. You should have seen how I responded to this situation. See, when you're impressed with God, you're not impressed with yourself. And that means you're worshiping. You're, you're reflecting on who he is, not on who you are. You're impressed with his greatness, not your own. Your attention is on him and not on yourself. And we see God in his holiness. We're filled with worship. Thirdly, it motivates us to pursue personal holiness. We will pursue personal holiness. Ephesians 1.4 tells us that as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. That is God's desire in saving you. The desired outcome is for us to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, for us to live holy lives, for us to increase in our hatred of sin. If you're like us, we, around our house, we're not supposed to use the word hate. Our kids, very little, from very little, okay, we don't hate this, we don't hate that person. But one time it's okay to use the word hate is when we're talking about sin. It's okay to hate sin. In fact, it is very much advisable. God wants us to have our stomach churning at the very thought of sin. He wants us to despise sin as he does. And when we gaze at his holiness, we get a little, little sense of what, I, what Joseph meant. Remember when Potiphar's wife was trying to get him into the bedroom? And he had no one else around him, no pastor or, or, or Christian friend looking over his shoulder to, to challenge him. He was the only Christian in all of Egypt. No one was looking. And when Potiphar's wife, day after day, tempted him, he says in Genesis 39, 9, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? He knew his God. And he knew the grievous nature of sin. People who understand God's holiness don't play around with temptation knowing they can just confess and ask for forgiveness later. They hate sin because they have a God who cannot look upon it. The fourth thing is that we will look forward to when sin will be no more. We will look forward to when sin will be no more. Revelation 21.4, I love this verse. John wrote, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You and I know that sin leaves in its wake heartache, pain, ruined relationships, sickness and death. All the hurt and all that is bad in this world is, is a result of sin. Some of you spend a lot of time thinking about the glorious fact that one day we will be set free from it all. Some of you suffer acutely from the effects of sin in this world. Physical sickness, ruined relationships that are just there every moment of the day. One day, sin will be no more. All the awful wretched effects, all the backaches, 
all the arguments with your spouse, all the funerals, all the cancer treatments, they'll be gone. They'll be gone one day. It's okay to think about that. It's okay to thank God for that. And it is most definitely okay for you to pray for that day to come quickly. And then lastly, we will understand the cross more clearly. We will understand the cross more clearly. I want to finish with this, with this thought. We learn things in Scripture when you read about God's Word that because of His holiness, God, God takes sin absolutely seriously. Habakkuk one thirteen says, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. I, I had a conversation with a retired pastor one day and I almost couldn't believe my ears because we were, we were talking about, we, the conversation started about hell and, and he didn't like that, the, the idea, the concept of punishment. It made him squeamish. And so he said, I, well, I, I kind of like to think that in the end, God will give everybody a second chance. And I said, that's not biblical. That's, it's not in scripture anywhere. And we, we talked about that and, and it, we eventually wandered over to the cross in our discussion and to the atonement of Christ. And he actually admitted to me, he said, I guess I just don't really know why Jesus had to die. And I about came out of my chair. You were a pastor and, and you don't know why Jesus had to die? God's holiness is why Jesus had to die. Because we rebelled. Because we turned our back. And the only chance that we had to be in the presence of a holy God is for that holy God to make a perfect sin-atoning sacrifice. And there was one option. There were no plan Bs. There were no other, other semi-holy people waiting in the wings to be in atonement. There was one option, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. And you and I can come into the presence of God this morning for one reason alone. One reason alone, and that is Jesus Christ. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God bore our sin in His own body so that we might become righteous in His sight. God's holiness demands absolute and total perfection. And not one of us in this room even comes close, even on our best of days. There is only one man who has ever walked the face of the earth who does, and that's Jesus Christ. And so as we think about the holiness of God, we, sh we should tremble. We should be filled with awe. But I also want you to take heart that that same holy God who demanded perfection also provided it. And so that now we can stand before him. If you have trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you can stand before him, washed clean. May the holiness of God today fill your hearts with awe. May you Worship before the majesty of this holy God.
But may we also be filled with gratitude that we can, because of the sufficiency of Christ, approach this God. Let's pray. God, as I read the the text this week and prayed on it and meditated on it, once again, I, I just was reminded of the overwhelming, what, what a, just a, a serious sinner I am. And the seriousness of that sin separated me from you. And the only reason that I have that relationship now is because of Christ. Because you and your holy, perfect standards were met with the perfect sacrifice, the suitable sacrifice. God, I don't know where everybody's at this morning, but I imagine that there are some people here who need to tremble at their sin. That there are some people here who have just been casually allowing sin to go on in their life, thinking, well, it's no big deal. Nobody knows. I'm not hurting anybody. God, may those believers be convicted deeply of their sin before a holy God. For others, may we just be filled with worship and gratitude at the grace of this almighty God. Thank you, God, for hearing us today. Change our lives through your word and the work of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.